Would you like an opinion on a financial matter you're dealing with? Whether it's about retirement, investments, taxes, or 401ks, Scott Hansen and Pat McLean would like to help you by answering your call. To join Allworth's Money Matters, call now at 833-99-WORTH. That's 833-99-WORTH. Hi, Scott Hansen here, Allworth's Money Matters. Uh, Pat and I recorded our traditional show, which you'll hear shortly. Uh, but it, we recorded about a week ago, and so much has gone on with the financial markets. We thought we would uh, have a little update on what's um, what's happened this past week with Silicon Valley Bank and the rest. And so I'm interviewing with Andy Stout. And so I hope you enjoy this. After about 15 minutes, you'll hear our regular programming. Well, hi, everyone. Scott Hansen here. Um, I'm here with Andy Stout, our chief investment officer at Allworth. Uh, we want to just have a conversation about... Uh, <laughs> What's going on in the markets this week? Obviously, it's been a crazy week. And so, Andy, thanks for taking a little time to, to be with us. Thank you, Scott. Happy to be here. Yeah. So, um, first of all, what's your take on what's your take on what the Fed's done with the bank, uh, SVB, and what's happening with some of these other regional banks? And Yeah, so when we look at what's been going on with the regional banks and just the banking industry in the whole, there appears to be some cracks emerging in the system, partly because the Federal Reserve has kept interest rates so low for so long and then uh, hiked them really, really quickly to fight off inflation. And that inflation and shock led to this interest rate shock, which is having an effect on the bank's balance sheets in general. And when we look at problems with the banks. I mean, there's a few things you want to think about. You want to think about, is there a liquidity issue? Is there a solvency issue? And those are two very different things. When you look at the banking industry as a whole, solvency does not appear to be a problem, meaning, you know, they're going to be profitable enough to stay in business. Liquidity is when there's a run on deposits and then they can't satisfy that because their assets are tied up. And that's what happened with SVB or Silicon Valley Bank. So let me just start by saying with them, they failed Finance 101 in college, right? They yeah. did well, not they're, do... Their board, I think there was one person with a banking background on the board. They were a bunch of outside. They were got involved in things that really... Their mission wasn't even about banking anymore, it seemed. <laughs> they got confused. And, and they failed the, the most basic thing when it comes to banking, which is matching assets with liabilities. When you look at what their uh, composition was of their clients, it was really concentrated in tech startups, which is, it's, that's fine. But what happens when that industry slows and you're so concentrated, people yeah. end up pulling their money out. And, and it, then it's really interesting because I have, I had a good friend of mine go to work for that bank several years ago. And uh, I was really, I learned a lot more about the bank, what was happening there. And I thought, well, what in the world, how is this bank going to do in the, when there's a tech recession? Because uh, tech had been in a boom really since 2000, since the last dot-com thing. And people forgot that tech can go through its own recessions. And so here we started seeing a pullback. And I think, and there's not a lot of written about, it, but I think that's really what the, what the challenge was here, right? Because it, had they had a diverse set of depositors, they wouldn't be in the position that they're in. But because they were so focused on these tech startups, and the lockdowns created all this capital that the deposits went through the roof and they had to put the deposit to work somewhere. And then we, cycles turn and suddenly there's no there's no IPOs for these companies. There's no fresh cash that's getting to deposit. Instead, that these startups are having to use their capital for the business expenses. And so all of a sudden the bank starts seeing their their depositors decline. And that's what that's what kind of triggered this all from the from the start, right? And had they had their reserves in short-term securities, short-term treasuries. We wouldn't be in this situation, but they did it. So it seemed to me that there was kind of two things they screwed up on. Yeah, that's exactly right. When you look at their assets, they had about 56% or so in treasury bonds, and but more specifically, longer term treasury bonds. So they were seeing a lot of variability in their value. So when they went to sell those treasuries to cover the deposits that people wanted their money back, they were doing it, uh, taking a big loss on those treasuries. And that's really where it all came to fruition. And uh, we saw FDIC take over Silicon Valley Bank. Yeah. And I don't know how I feel. I mean, I do know how I feel. I don't I don't like the fact that um, every depositor was made whole to 100 percent. I they just um, I, I, I clearly understand that something needed to be done. Otherwise, there'd be a run on every regional bank. And I have actually quite a bit of concern of what this is going to mean to regional banks, because my guess is uh, boards of companies around the country are asking their CFOs like, hey, where are we keeping our cash deposits? Are they insured? Why are we with the small bank? Why aren't we with one of the the, the large, two, you know, too large to fail banks that are 
practically tied in with the government these days. But um, yeah, so if, if you look at it from that perspective, Scott, I mean, the FDIC did an explicit guarantee on all deposits for uh, depositors at uh, Silicon Valley Bank. But what that explicit guarantee really was, it was an implicit guarantee for the rest of the 100%. banking industry that the FDIC or the Treasury, however you want to look at it, would come in and save the day if something would happen. And to your point, what that results in is the potential for moral hazard where people take way too much risk yeah. for what they're really supposed to be doing doing, which is banking, which isn't supposed to be a really risky thing. Yeah. Well, it'll be interesting. I mean, we could talk about Silicon Valley Bank, and but we are seeing some spillover to some other banks, obviously, both yep. in Europe uh, and and even some highly what were highly respected banks here in the U.S., like uh, First Republic. It looks like um, you know they, 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 they ran into some challenges. I mean, their stock got down almost 90 percent from where it was high. It's just incredible. Um, but it's been... Um, it's been a it's really an interesting thing. I think, Andy, I think a lot of people are, and I don't know if a lot of people, but some people are clearly concerned, like, is this, is, is this just the first chapter of, 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 a, of a long book on the next recession, right? What's coming next? And so um, maybe you can just kind of share maybe what's different this time around than what we had back in the Great Recession in 07 and some of the cracks we started seeing in banking. Yeah, so 2007, 2008, 2009, the great financial crisis was significantly different than what we have going on here when it comes to the banking industry as a whole. I mean, just think about it. First off, all of these banks back then were very interconnected with cross-lending. And you, I don't know if you remember the term CDOs and CDO squares, wherever there's lending on lending. No one knew what the exposure was from <laughs> one bank to another. Like, if this bank failed, what did it mean for, you know, uh, it's like six degrees uh, separation. You don't know what happens down the road. That's all pretty well known. That's been pretty much fixed. Uh, there, I mean, there's still some interconnectivity, obviously, not going to downplay that, but it's nothing like it was in 2008. Also, remember, one of the biggest causes was the subprime lending market. And when you look at the housing market today, Yes, it is coming down, but you don't have the same degree of uh, lenders out there from the subprime side. And we know what the exposures are. We know now how banks have handled that in terms of uh, keeping skin in the game, as it's called, where they got to keep some of those loans before selling them off. So it's nothing like 2008. Is there possibly some other bank issues to happen? Yeah. I mean, Credit Suisse over uh, in, in uh, Switzerland, that's a, that's a big deal. That's something to keep watching. But if you think about them, Scott, they've had a history of mismanagement from spying on outgoing executives uh, yeah. to the big hedge fund collapse. They leaked, what, 30,000 uh, customer data, customers uh, data last year, uh, which tied them in with some uh, drug trafficking, money laundering, and things like that. Now, what we had this week, uh, the SEC saying, hey, your financial statements are material weakness was the term they use. So in other words, we can't really trust what they are reporting on their income statement and balance sheet. Uh, Saudi National Bank pulled their, or not investing any more money. Uh, so all this came together, a lot of outflows in Credit Suisse, and you have everything going on here in the U.S. with SVB. And, you know, that's going to be a problem. So uh, Credit Suisse, they'll probably be saved some form or another. I know the Swiss National Bank's already uh, letting them borrow like $54 billion. Uh, but what we're probably going to end up seeing way down the road, so you're asking like what could happen, uh, probably some sort of, I think it's one of two things. It's either like a, a takeover of Credit Suisse, maybe by UBS, and a sell-off of their existing assets, or it's just going to be a completely... Uh, full deposit guarantee for all depositors, and that would allow them to essentially yeah. restructure their bank. And I think that's what could happen there. But here in the U.S., I mean, you got Signature Bank, which failed. Uh, Silicon Valley, they failed. You got First Republic. They just got a lifeline this week where uh, $30 billion of deposits are coming from uh, other banks. So that's going to shore them up. Uh, you know, but the problem with uh, First Republic, and this is the thing with Silicon Valley, Signature Bank, First Republic, they're not representative of the entire uh, banking sector at all. A lot of these companies had a vast majority of their assets as uninsured, and that spooks people that can really different, bankrupt. Yeah. Yep. And I think you Absolutely. look at most regional, re, most regional banks, they're probably something more like 80 or 85% of their deposits are under the 250 limit. And frankly, a lot of banks have a suite programs where they, they, they work with other banks so that they can get the 250 limit multiple times over. Um, what, so, um, yeah. And I also thought it was interesting with Signature Bank um, and Barney Frank was on their board, you know, the Dodd-Frank bill that's named after him. That's, and, uh, um, I don't know. It's a little, my personal, a little my ironic. Yeah. Is, I, I don't. The, the government is way too involved in a lot of businesses' lives, whether it's the Fed 
and the Fed trying to control the economy, and we see what kind of mistakes they make there, and then you get ex-politicians then start, um, they know the rules of the game because they wrote the rules, and then they go and lobby to get the rules changed so they don't have to abide by the rules, and here we are today. So anyway, and here, minute, go ahead, Andy. I was going to say, and here we are today, but you know, one thing the government and policymakers need to do, they need to keep that confidence in the banking system so we keep that financial market stability. 100%. I know it is a bailout. There's no question about that. Uh, and I know people say it won't come to tax, won't be on taxpayers, but it will eventually come to taxpayers, of whether course. you like it or not, in one form or anyway. another. Yeah. But I mean, they are doing probably what needs to be done given the situation, but perhaps we shouldn't have been done in this, put in that situation to begin with. Yeah. Well, I I personally would have liked them to see like, let, let everyone have a haircut, let the Fed step in and but say we're going to provide the liquidity immediately, the cash is available, but with some haircut short term, because um, there's probably not enough assets to cover all those uh, depositors. We'll see. Uh, and then put us and then guarantee um, kind of unlimited on, on other banks for a period of time. But anyway, um, they made the decisions. They, they didn't have a lot of time to make those decisions. And here's where we are. But from an investment standpoint and an investor standpoint, like uh, for those of us that are nearing retirement or already retired or like, like what's your take with that? Well, I mean, there are good things going on in the world uh, for investors. Inflation's been in the headlines. There's the good news on inflation is the momentum is slowing. So that's 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 really good news. That also means we're near the peak of the Fed hiking interest rates. The Fed meets next uh, Wednesday to announce how much they're going to raise or not raise rates. If you go back a couple that's of weeks really ago, changed. <laughs> it's yeah, changed from. Everyone's betting a half a half point. And where are we yeah. sitting today? This is Thursday afternoon that we're recording yeah. this on the March 16th. Well, as of Thursday afternoon, there's a 78% chance of just one quarter point rate hike. And that means a 22% chance of no move at all by the Fed. And when we look at the pricing, yeah. that's based on Fed fund futures, which are securities that are uh, traded, indicating where the Fed funds rate might be. But if we look at for the remainder of the year, there's basically three to four cuts already priced in uh, for the rest of this year. So that's what the market is expecting. Rate cuts. Rate cuts, that's right. So wow. essentially we'll be about, if it pans out, about a 0.75 percentage points lower on the Fed funds rate, which is the overnight rate that banks can lend to each other. Sounds a little esoteric, Scott, I know. However, every other interest rate in the world is really just based off that funds of fund rate. So when they make that move, it affects everything. But yeah, so interest rate cycle is nearing uh, the end. Inflation momentum is slowing. Uh, and then we look at just um, the overall picture, Yes, there is elevator risk, but really focusing on high quality bonds and high quality stocks is uh, where we're thinking might be a, a good place to add some value. Yeah, and I think um, there, there's always that kind of short term bias, whatever's going on, people have a tendency to believe it's going to continue forever, right? And uh, I, I'm actually in Dallas right now at a conference at, for Barron's uh, Magazine, and last night Jeremy Siegel was uh, our speaker for dinner, and I actually got to chat with him a bit afterwards, and uh, he was a University of Chicago professor for I don't know, 45 years, something like that. He's on CNBC all the time. Many of you might know his name. Um, but, uh, and he's, he, he reminded, he somehow got data back to 1802. Uh, and if you look at the U.S. stock market since 1802, uh, historically stocks have averaged 6.7 percentage points above that of inflation. And he just kind of looked at all these different periods of time and it still kind of held true. And it was just, a, it was just always a good reminder that. These short-term things are going to happen. There's always noise in, in the economy. Uh, frankly, when it's, it's times like these that create the best buying opportunities, and when everything looks rosy and euphoric, you know, maybe that's time where you take a little chips off the table and make sure you, you rebalance. Great time to rebalance for in, investors that have not rebalanced because um, you know, stocks are a little cheaper than they used to be. And um, but I'm, I, you know, over the long term, I still feel very, very confident in in the, the U.S. economy. I feel confident, frankly, even in the global economy. Um, we've, we've got, there's still a lot of uh, tailwinds behind us and um, we'll get through this banking crisis like we have every other thing we've, we've been through in the past. Exactly. So we got through 2008, we got through COVID. Both of those felt like the world's come to an end, right? But they ended up being great opportunities if you had capital to invest. And if you were just patient, and didn't uh, make a costly emotional decision, you still came out ahead. So really it's just a matter of focusing on the longer run. Cause I mean, if you look at three and five year periods in the uh, S&P 500, as an example, they're up about 85 to almost 90% of the time going back you know, over the past 50 to 75 years. Yeah, I mean, so it's really just to your point, the world does feel like it ends a lot, <laughs> but most of the time you're doing pretty well if you're a patient investor. 
Yeah. Well, hey, Andy, thanks for taking a little time. I know uh, I'm in my hotel room in, in Dallas and you're somewhere busy as well. It looks like you're in your office. Welcome to All Worth's Money Matters, Scott Hansen and Pat McLean. Glad you're with us as we talk about financial matters. Both myself and my co-host beside me here. We are both financial advisors, practicing financial advisors, certified financial planner, chartered financial consultant, and we've spent the last three decades helping people like yourself plan their financial future, broadcast this program on the weekends. For 27 years, something like yep. that? Yep. Long time. Long time. Long time. Enjoy doing it. Really like the phone calls, though. Really enjoy people calling in and asking questions about their financial situation yeah and we'll take those uh today and we also have a a special guest uh hal hirschfield we've interviewed him in the past um he's a phd down at uh ucla but um he's really interesting yeah he studies a lot of behavioral science yeah around investing, which is what drives so much of what drives investments um over the particularly over the short term even institutional investing oh 100 percent Right. You, people pretend that they like the spreadsheet says everything. Here's my experience. Three decades. People can make spreadsheets, tell them whatever they want to hear. That if they are set on something like they want to buy this company at this sort of price, they will just continue to change the assumptions until it gives them the output that they want. They uh, they will build uh, an Excel spreadsheet that a that, model. Can, that will actually access confirmation bias to their decision. That's all it is, confirmation bias. It is. Uh-huh. Don't you think so? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you've seen would, them. But we, but, but everyone. Oh, we're all guilty We of all that. do that. Look, you get a new car and you're driving down the road. You see a gazillion of them. You like, see I had all no of a sudden, I had so no common. idea that everyone, and that's a form of confirmation bias that you actually um, bought the right car is, or maybe it's just vanity. Might Depends be vanity. on the car. And then you look at see how good looking the people driving the cars that are just same driving the same car as you and figure out how good looking they are. And you're like, oh no. That person identifies with this brand. I'm in trouble. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah, you've seen it. Oh, wow. It's like the yes. I thought I was driving a hip car. That person's driving this car too. I, I know. Maybe I'm just not hip. <laughs> Maybe my dad's Buick. Anyway, hey, we're going to take on. calls in a couple moments here, but before um, we've, and you've heard us talk before in the past on these SPACs, special purpose acquisition companies. And a couple years ago, going public is very costly and cumbersome in today's day and age. So in 20, 30 years ago, companies would oftentimes go public. They get to a certain size they raise money through the public markets, carry on with their business plan. Today, it's so complicated and so cumbersome, so costly that people, companies stay private some forever. And there was, a, there was a period of time where reverse, mortgage, uh, reverse mergers were very, very That's popular. Correct. That's right. Which is where you would buy a company that was kind of a shell that didn't really do anything that was on its way out. And then you'd have a buy the company you really wanted. Yeah, correct. That company Which is just a, this is a SPAC with a different cover on it. Yeah. So SPACs, someone figured out, hey, if we do this special purpose acquisition company, it's kind of like going pop. We, we, what we do is we buy this company. We don't have a business yet, but we say we're going to find a business to invest in. And it's a way to kind of s- skirt around the typical avenue you'd have to go through. You don't have to give any projections about what's going to happen in the future or what the business plan is or and, revenues. And you don't have to have any audited financials. A lot of people on Wall Street thought this is a good way to make some money because, heck, we can charge all kinds of fees for putting these things together. Well... <laughs> There's a pile of bankruptcies right now. Quantum Sim- Systems, as an example, it took them 10 months to go from its stock market debut to bankruptcy. 10 months. And uh, Fast Radius did it in nine months. Yeah, here we go. Electric Mile. They went bankrupt in 352 days. Enjoy Technologies did it in uh, eight and a half months. 530. Clarist Therapeutics, 361 days. Enjoy Technology, 256 days. These are all like a year. Where the money Watch was raised, it's, it, when, when, it, just when they're trying to sell it to you as the next new thing, be very, very careful. Yeah. So, hey, let's um, take some calls. 833-99-WORTH is our number. And we're talking with Anna. Anna, you're with Allworth's Money Matters. Hi, Scott and Pat. Hi, Anna. Anna. 
Hi, long-time listener. Uh, you've called before, time. have you not? I have not. This no, I don't remember it on. Uh, okay, well, I'm glad to, <laughs> that you're calling. Yeah, well, here's my question. I have no interest in owning a home. I'm six years old. I'm single. I have no plans to marry at this time, but, you know, I'm open to the future, but let's I can't really think about that in terms of uh, planning. And I have always found that I, I did own a home at one time many years ago. Um, I also took care of two parents as they aged and uh, was pretty much put in charge of taking care of their home. And in both instances, I found it very overwhelming. You are... First of all, I don't have anyone to share the responsibilities, so I am up against taking care of every single thing that happens in the house, and that goes wrong. And I just found, especially after my parents both passed, that I just was like, you know, why would I want to put myself into that situation where I'm constantly having to be worried about a home? I'm already worried about my own self. Okay. And I have seen articles um, from economists even that have said actually renting is uh, much more economical. And instead of using your money to put down on a home, that it's actually better to invest. And But I've also heard you guys speak numerous times about own well, your home, have it paid off. Anyway, so I just wanted to oh, put no, that out there and see what your no, thoughts were. I just listened to a uh a podcast um, just like six, eight weeks ago with an economist on the podcast with exactly this, with this, this in mind, which is economically, if, if you go strictly by the numbers and how people actually treat their own homes versus their renters rented home, that you can make an argument. And this economist did that, your money is much better off invested in a well-balanced portfolio over time um, by taking the difference between. But but in difference now, between, but you, like you, the exact same home? No, that's the point okay. for a, a dwelling. And so, and what it failed to ignore is that in where you're buying in the cycle versus rent versus buy, because there's certainly times that you. Look at over the economic side uh, over short periods of time where you can make the argument that you're better off renting. And From an economic standpoint, rent the cheapest apartment you can. If you're comparing the cheapest apartment you can you can find versus a m nice home, obviously, from an economic standpoint, do the cheap but, apartment. But our point is when we say this is that buying a home has a given outcome where renting a home doesn't necessarily have a given outcome unless you're actually doing exactly what you should be doing, which is recognizing that you need to possibly save more in order to offset inflation yeah. in those rents. So tell us about your financial situation. So I consider myself a success story. Okay. But not in the, <laughs> but not probably by your standards. And oh, no, 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 no. Yeah, let me explain. Okay. So. And by the I way, I have very low standards. <laughs> <laughs> Good to know. <laughs> Low standards. Uh, <laughs> nice. So 10 years ago, I had basically nothing. I was in debt. I had credit card debt. I had tax debt. I had all kinds of stuff going on. I have, I have turned that around. I have zero debt. I cards paid for my, I have no credit card debt. I pay my credit cards off every month. I have managed to save close to $400,000 in the last 10 years. Um, I have increased my, I've been able to get promoted. I'm now, my last year's earnings were $160,000. I'm saving and I'm maxing out everything I possibly can. But I know I'm behind the eight ball. That's right. I know I'm behind. And I listen to you guys. I know it. I, I listen to you. I listen to other podcasts. And, I, and so I'm trying to get the best returns on everything. And for the last three or four years, I've been saving for a home, but I'm very ambivalent about it. Okay. What's I, your rent I, cost you today? I'm paying $2,500 for a beautiful place in Marina Bay and in, in the Bay Area in Richmond. Um, 
and it's a condo that I'm renting from the owner. It's very nice, but I'm not a condo person though. So I, cause I know that that might be an option for me. But you're living in um, one. I am living in one. I do appreciate the uh, fact that they take care of everything on the outside. And so, but honestly, I do like the idea of having my own, it would, you know, four walls and nobody on either side of them. So okay, which will cost this, you more this, money. So if you're if the if the option is renting a condo versus buying a house in the Bay Area, you're probably better off renting the condo. But the apples to apples would be renting the condo versus buying an equivalent condo. So you've chosen you've chosen to rent the condo, which is less expensive. But 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 Scott, but, but in honest, she doesn't want to own a house. Well, they don't own a house. They don't own a house. But you need to save a lot more money. Yes. A I lot agree. more money. Our only, the, the reason, here's why we have concern about going into retirement and not having a roof paid for. What happens if we have a high inflation and that 2500 goes to 3500 or 4500 or 5500 right. or 6500 Right. And if you look at other but, economies that have, high, have gone through high inflation or even our own back in the in the uh, late 70s, early 80s, it was most detrimental on retired people because workers, their paychecks went up. Right. But those that like on fixed... Has. yeah. Yeah, like your says, but those on fixed income... Will you story. receive a pension when you retire? I will not. I will not. But the owners have been kind to me. Yeah. I, I'm actually thinking of investing in the company uh, to possibly get a return there, but that's another... That's it, in thing. your own company that you work for. Yeah, I work for, yeah. Okay. Yeah. But that's a different you need to if you're going to rent forever. Yeah. Especially if you're going to stay in the Bay Area, which by the way, they they're they could go all over the board in a matter of years, which we have seen the home prices. Last, uh, no, rents too. In yeah, the Bay I would, Area. I would yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if some rents came down in some areas. Um Yeah, I don't know if I'll stay here. That is the question. Okay. Well, then that but, is it's yep. 60 years old. If you think that you're going to retire in the next 5 to 10 years, and that there's a mm-hmm. chance that you're not going to stay in the Bay Area, I would not buy a home. Right. I would Correct. continue to rent. Yes. Okay. I see what you're saying. Right. If I have to hold a house for 10 years, that you, I could, my return on that house may be nothing. If you have less than five years, don't buy a house. Yeah. yeah. And even five yeah. to 10, if, if you should not. I mean, you might find that you yeah. want to move to, you know, um, Missoula, Montana, because you love the cold. <laughs> Not, not. <laughs> but, 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 but uh, you shouldn't be, you shouldn't be beating yourself up. But, but by the time you retire, you should have a goal of over a million dollars uh, saved. Appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah. But I you've mean, done great. I mean, you came out, obviously something changed yeah. in your life in the last 10 years that, you know, that I got serious. Yeah. I well, got the... serious and I got help. I got help. That's, Good. you know, you have to be able to reach out and. Yep. And uh, get the support you need. Yeah, get, yeah. Listen, I understand. Better place in your life. Yeah, yeah. I understand. Sometimes you you got the ability, but not the will. There and that go. happens. I there was go. looking. You're talking to a guy that was the worst student you've ever met in college. Not because I was stupid, <laughs> just I didn't care until I met my wife. Then <laughs> <laughs> you had purpose. And amazingly, like I was on the dean's honors list the next semester. Really? Oh yeah. I went from <laughs> academic probation my sophomore year. Why? What did what did Kathy do different? I was windsurfing every every day, oh, yeah. snow skiing. Women have a tendency to let remind. At least my wife, she reminds me where the guardrails are. Yeah, that, right? yeah. I mean, I went from academic probation to dean's honors list in one semester, and they're like, "What happened?" I'm like, "You know, you do much better when you come to class." Yeah. So appreciate, appreciate the, call. the call. It reminds me, Pat, in high school, I was not a good student in high school. If I got higher than a C, I thought I was wasting my time. And I remember in French class, <laughs> why? Because because why a C's a degree. I don't know. I just like, I just, so I had the French class and I just, for whatever reason, I decided I was going to actually like read the chapter. And so I got like an A on the quiz, or the test or whatever it is. And the teacher, she handed me the things back and she says, I know you cheated. I just can't prove it. And I was, I was so offended. <laughs> were, you really, was were you really offended? I still remember it. But you were offended. <laughs> that was the only time that you actually cried. But in history class, everyone did cheat. look at Mark Nyman's, uh, how, where's Mark now? I don't know. We always looked up to Mark. He sat in the front in the whole class, in Uncle Larry's class. <laughs> Your teacher's name was Uncle they Larry? They called him Uncle Larry. <laughs> well, that's creepy. 
<laughs> just saying. That's just plain creepy. <laughs> they did. He, I they don't did. know. I remember those things. But they didn't call him Uncle Larry to his face, did they? Uncle Larry. He was known as Uncle Larry. He'd answered Uncle Larry. You had me one of those teachers that they just, you can tell they were just counting down a couple more years oh, to God. Oh, yeah. That was him. He yeah. was done with teenage. Yeah. Which, I, as an older guy, I don't blame him. I would probably be the same. <laughs> they were just like, listen, buddy, you're just time on my calendar. You call yourself a student, but you're just time on my calendar until I'm out of this place. That's what Uncle Larry was. Hence the name Uncle Larry. <laughs> Let's head now to California and talk with Jeffrey. Jeffrey, you're with Allworth's Money Matters. Hi, guys. Uh, thanks for taking my call. I've enjoyed your show for more than 25 years. Oh, uh, thanks. Rarely you. ever called, but uh, uh, always enjoy listening to your uh, podcast. Well, thank you. Uh, I'll, I'll, ask, I'll ask my question first and then give you the background. So the question is, should I open a SEP IRA or some other deferred compensation agreement or uh, arrangement for my 2023 income? Or should I just pay the taxes now and put the rest in a brokerage account? Okay, tell us about your situation then. So the, the background is I'm 64 years old. My wife is 66. And I quit my job of 25 years two years ago. And I opened my own consulting business as a sole proprietor, Schedule C, that kind of thing. At that time, I rolled my 401k for my prior employment into an IRA. In my consulting job, I expected to work 20 or 25 hours a week and really didn't need to work, but I enjoyed doing what I do primarily. And uh, I expected I might, in, you know, net 100K a year in that part-time role. Mm -hmm. Yes. However, in my first full tax year, which is 2021, business was a lot busier than I expected, and I had net earnings over 400K. Wow. Yes. <laughs> Yes. Good for you. Uh, you know, uh, so, I was I was waiting for this because I have seen lots of <laughs> we have lots of clients that have left and and, your, and you make me consulting back to the same industry you left, I assume, probably or the same company. Yes. Yeah. Yes. They've got a lot of expertise and wisdom. You yeah. Can do yeah. This you've got, yeah. Yeah. You've got institutional knowledge, which is hard to to find, and they're willing to pay for it. Yep. What's so, your? Uh, go ahead. Continue. So, so I maxed out for that. 2021 tax year, maxed out a SEP IRA. Go to see my accountant early in 2022. He says, holy cow, you have to set up an S-Corp. You need to set up an S-Corp. And he, I won't go into why he said that, but I'm sure you guys get that. Um, we hired my wife as my uh, biller, payroll expert, um, scheduler. And we, she and I are the only employees of this S-Corp. Uh, as I said, she's 66. She has about 32 quarters of work under the Social Security rules. So uh, in brilliant. Years, she'll brilliant. have 40 quarters. Brilliant. Actually, I think you can get um, four quarters. Can't you get four quarters in one quarter? It uh, depends on what the uh, uh, how much the income it's is. It's really low. Yeah. Anyway, continue. Okay, continue. That's brilliant to get to 40 quarters so that she's Social Security eligible. So the net earnings of the S-Corp before paying payroll to my wife and I for 2022 were about 470. Uh, and I expect 2023 is going to be the same way. And uh, what, um, how much were you able to contribute in the, the SEP IRA? What's the maximum on that? Uh, as a sole proprietor, I ended up doing, I believe it was 58 yeah. or yep. 59. Solo K like that. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And what's your overall uh, net worth ballpark? So good question. So I have my wife and I have about uh, 1.1 million just in cash split among eight different banks and credit unions. That IRA that I rolled over, it declined in value, of course, over last year. So it's down to about 3.9 million. Uh, the SEP IRA from the one year, yeah, it's got about 55 in it. I think it dropped a little. Uh, have an HSA with 220k. Roth IRA. That's a big HSA. 90K. Okay. Yeah. And no debt, I assume. Uh, and no debt. Uh, no, he's paying off his $18,000 credit card balance back. <laughs> I'm in on his home, Scott. <laughs> All right. Here's what I think um, you should do. Did your, did your accountant talk to you about setting up a defined benefit yep, pension plan? Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking. Or quasi age based profit sharing plan. I, I, yeah. I go by actually different meeting with him. In February, and I thought this is uh, 
I should get your opinion. So yeah, yeah that's that's my question. So so this is not this isn't unusual at all. And so what you want to do is you want to set up it's a quasi defined benefit pension plan. And we normally don't pitch ourselves, but we actually have, we have a division that specializes in. Uh, we, it, it typically goes after industries where you have a uh, an older employee owner who's got the vast majority of the wages and only a couple employees. Read dentist, yeah, doctor, okay. <laughs> yeah, right. And we, so you can structure it where you can put massive amounts into your retirement account. So we have a. So we actually have uh, people in our company that actually. Whether it's us or not, talk to someone who's well, done this and does yeah, this. But stuff. we internally we have people that specialize in this particular structure, which is written for you. I mean, it is. This is exactly where there's typically one very high income earner that has a tendency to be older, and a couple of younger employees. Yours is a little bit different, but it's your wife, so who cares? Um, and what it is is it's based on a defined benefit that you would receive at some point in the future. So let's you might actually increase your wife's wages on this. And you could you a Roth defined benefit. Yeah, I it, believe. Can you? Uh, if it's I, for profit sharing. Yeah. So what you, you should would, be able to. what you do is you actually say the benefit at retirement will be seventy thousand dollars a year, and then you go to back to sure. a formula, just broad scope. So every financial advisor or attorney wants to call me and. You complain that I did this wrong. This is broadly speaking. This is not what you do on a regular basis. You are not the expert. Yes, but this is broadly speaking. You define a benefit to come out in the future. Let's call it age 70. Then you actuarially figure out how much money you need to put into that plan in order to provide the benefit in the future. And that will go in on a pre or post tax basis. But that's what you want to do. You have, you have left the realm of the 401k or the uh, the self-employed um, pension plan or the 401k. Okay. Right. I would certainly look into that. And right. yeah, it is. And it's perfect. 470,000 is much higher than your required minimum distribution is going to be, even though you've done a great job saving. In your yeah. And so you could, you could shelter over half of this. Yep. Okay. Yeah. So ask your accountant and they go by a lot of different names, but. That's what you want is a defined benefit plan. Okay. Very good. At least, at least seriously look into it. Yeah, well, come on, Scott. Oh, that's what I would do if I was. <laughs> would seriously <laughs> look into it. I would look to see if you can, yeah. I mean, there's more money he's made in his whole life. And this guy, you retired, you're like, I'm going to take it easy. And all of a sudden you're like, you, re- you, you probably had to think to yourself, were they underpaying me all those years? <laughs> well, exactly. And uh, I can't, I, I am turning clients down now. I cannot do more uh are you having fun so it's good i am having great fun yeah, good that's good good, good, good. and remember if you if you if you you know this is i've had this discussion with many of people it's okay to raise your rates until uh clients actually um uh, decide that you're charging too much and let them decide not you if you're turning clients down yeah. uh you know just understand how it works underneath the supply and demand curve but you've got to do that yourself. And yeah. some people just say, like, it's fair. You. Wish, you, wish you well. It's great. I appreciate it. Yeah. All right. Thank you so Thanks. much. Have All a right. good day. Thanks. Yeah. You know, it's interesting, Pat. I was, uh, years ago, I, I was doing a retirement workshop. Not that many years ago, actually. And um, I'm kind of in the back. And I still do them periodically. I'm, I've done, I don't know if it's a thousand, hundreds of, of live workshops over the years. And I still kind of enjoy it. Anyway. There was, I overheard a conversation. Someone said, yeah, well, never to take retirement advice from someone who's still working. And I think it was a little bit of a dig or something before I started. And I thought, well, just because I'm working doesn't mean I'm not able to retire, right? And so you look at someone like Jeffrey, clearly has the finances, and he's having a ball, and he's paid happy. a lot to do it. Like, Seems happy. Seems He seems, says he's really enjoying it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, that. Yeah. So, well, I don't believe I had a. Now, most people aren't quite in his situation. I think most people in their sixties like, I wish I had was in Jeffrey's situation. Well, that's right. That's right. But you know, I've heard people say the same thing that this one guy told me. He never takes money, uh, advice from someone that makes financial advice from someone that makes less than him. I thought, well, that's stupid. What happens if you're like Elon Musk? You don't like to listen to anybody. <laughs> well, he probably doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, fair enough. <laughs> I think you got a point. We're taking a quick break. We'll be right back. 
Can't get enough of Allworth's Money Matters? Visit allworthfinancial.com slash radio to listen to the Money Matters podcast. Welcome back to Allworth's Money Matters. Scott Hansen. Pat McLean, thanks for sticking with us. Yeah, um, we've got a, a fun guest on. We, we've had... We've had Hal on before. At least a couple, a couple times. times. Yeah, a few times. And oftentimes you get economists that, um, or people that are specialists in education that sometimes are brilliant, but not that inter- entertaining and <laughs> interesting to listen to. And uh, or, or disconnected from the real world. Everything's theoretical. You're kidding. I've never <laughs> talked to a professor, <laughs> professor like that. Professor, everything was theoretical. <laughs> you know, in a test tube. Yeah. Anyway, uh, Hal Hirschfeld, um, he's been with us in the past. He's at, uh, he's professor of marketing, behavioral decision-making, which is, we're going to talk about, and psychology at the UCL, uh, UCLA um, Anderson, Anderson School, School of Business. And so, Dr. Hal Hirschfeld, thanks for being part of us today. Hey, thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. And I feel like I have a lot to live up to now, not to talk about <laughs> test tubes and abstract stuff. <laughs> but you can if you want. Yeah, I'm kind of curious what what use you have with test tubes in your know, yeah, area yeah. of study. Yeah, but uh, if you want to, we'll just pretend like we're listening, and uh, you can continue to talk. No, we wanted to talk about like what's going on in this. Like, what's the psychology of the investor? Do you think right now? Like, what what would you be considered normal behavior in these marketplaces with all sorts of uncertainty? And what? Like, are people feeling the right way? Am I asking the question the right way? <laughs> well, you know. And by the way, that- we didn't want any. We didn't want someone who's a specialist in the, the economics. The fact that you, are, behavioral decision making, that's what drives investments over the particularly over the short term. So that's why we find you interesting here. I, I appreciate it. Yeah. No. I mean, I think your question's a great one, and I think you know part of the. Part of the issue there, of course, is, you know, what's the right way? And it's like quite difficult uh, to, to, you know, point to what does that even mean, right? So, I mean, and, and I don't, you know, I don't want to get too philosophical about it, but, you know, in, in a way, that's, that's one of those questions that you kind of hope investors have worked out in advance and have worked out with their advisors or with themselves, because, you know, part of the, the problem that we've seen, and it's not just now, it's, you know, anytime you see these ups and downs. Uh, part of the problem is when people start acting, you know, quote unquote, irrationally uh, in the short term, because all of a sudden the emotions take hold and 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 they're they're making decisions that they wouldn't necessarily make in a sort of a nice, calm, cool and collected state of mind. And how what, what other areas of life might some similarities <laughs> would you see? To like investor behavior, like mourning of the the death I, of. Well, I don't, a, I don't no, know. I'm, I'm asking, asking a question. Opinion. Yeah, that's a, 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 <laughs> as an example. Would that be something that no, would be? This, this is a great. No, I mean it's such a good question, right? So that you know the the classic example. I mean, I would say the the easiest analogy is the you know going to the grocery store when you're overly hungry or overly full, uh, and you've got to make decisions for the rest of your week. But, you know, I'd call this those those are decisions with consequences, though not nearly. Uh, you know, the, the, you know, they're, they're not nearly as consequential as investor decisions right now. And, you know, and the problem is that go to the grocery store hungry. You know, the you know how this goes, right? I may end yeah. up getting a lot more food than I need, and some maybe um, some junk you know, food, ha- ice cream, yeah. or something. Uh, I and, love and, the and pork rinds. <laughs> you know, and, and then the problem at the end of the week is that I've no problem finishing that stuff, and then I'm throwing out another package of zucchini yet again. You know, yeah. relatively um, small problem. Uh, relatively small, but then, you know, you can think about this in other settings as well, right? So, you know, what if I've got, you know, certain temptations that I, I find myself not really acting myself around, you know, I, I'm tempted by whether it's alcohol or drugs, or even, you know, someone outside of my relationship. These are all contexts where I may tell myself that I'm not going to smoke. I'm, I'm not going to, you know, drink to ex- excess. You know, I, I'm not going to meet up with my ex. And then the opportunity presents itself, and it's really easy to get pulled in by sort of those present moment temptations. 
I've never experienced that myself, Hal. So, so, <laughs> so, so essentially, like, <laughs> okay, thank you. Because <laughs> I'm not human. Uh, uh, so, so basically, that, like, hey, I, I, I told myself I wasn't going to react to the market because my advisor told me that markets go down for periods of time and that I should expect it, but now it's down and I can't really help myself. I'm just going to get, I'm bailing out of these markets. Right? Is that? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, I think to me that's a you know a great example. Uh, this, you know, this of course, and I'm sure we'll get to that. Go, you know, cuts both directions, right? right? You know, the market. You know, I, I see something that looks like it's on a rocket ship, and I want to get in, even though do I you know do I do I, have I really thought through this investment? And then the flip side, as you just mentioned, is things are starting to tank. I've told myself that I'm going to give it some time and not pull out for fear of you know missing out on the upswing, and yet here I find myself you know pulling out too quickly. And I think that's, that's one of these cases where, gosh, it really makes sense to try to have some, uh, you know, some rules set up in advance with the advisor. Um, and, you know, it, it, it's harder to do this if you're not working with an advisor, because then you're, you're sort of setting up the, the contract with yourself, and it's really easy to make excuses. The beauty of having that third party in there, uh, you know, or I guess really a, a second party in the, that case is, is is that you know it's just one extra layer of friction. It's one extra point where somebody can say, "Hold on, before you do anything, you know, you told me before that you didn't want to do this, and we set a rule for that." You know, um, and so I think that that's something that you know that's a real advantage there that can be conferred by by an outside professional. It's interesting. I've been a practicing financial advisor for, for over three decades. And Pat, you've heard me say this a number of times. Like, I think that the greatest value a financial advisor brings is not the financial planning or the tax planning or the picking the right ETFs or whatever. It's keeping people from making mistakes from which they cannot recover. So it's either the fear of missing out when something's taken off, crypto or whatever, the Dogecoin or whatever one of those things are. <laughs> or it's that it's the fear of going broke and not seeing far, not not having any confidence that the markets are going to recover, and you would think it's going to get worse every day, and then then you just you're you're running for safety. Yeah, and you and then you find yourself sitting on the sidelines. But you're, you know, you're you're absolutely right. I mean, it's you know, I've, I'm not the only person who said before. You know, people are people can often be their own worst enemies. Right. And it's a, you know, it's sort of a funny concept because it's, you know, it's like you've got these multiple versions of yourself where you've got the, the you who's, you know, just wants to do the right thing. And then you gets overwhelmed by those emotions, the stress, the fear, the, or, you know, the sort of, you know, the, yeah. in uh, Schiller's terms, you know, the irrational exuberance, right. Of, of wanting to not miss out on that, on that, that, you know, whatever it is, the Doja coin or How, <laughs> whatever the, of the moment. Yeah. How do you think that uh, marketers of financial products actually use uh, people's emotions against them? Yeah. I mean, look, it obviously depends on the financial product we're talking about, but I mean, gosh, how can we, you know, you, you can't get any more direct in this particular case than the sort of crypto ads we saw over the Super Bowl. You right. Know, A year ago. Yeah. Before, you know, <laughs> yeah, I, I forget what the, you know, it's like, Almost I, I every, other ad. Language. Every, every other, other ad. ad and every other ad and you, and you know, you don't, they, they, I, I, some of them, I think went so far as to almost say, don't miss out. They did, <laughs> but, <laughs> but you, you don't even need that language. All you need to have is the celebrity advertiser there because the implication is I want to live my life kind of like, like them. So if he's investing in it, I probably should too. I mean, that, that to me is the, the most direct example of and, marketers doing this sort of thing. And right? you know, it's interesting on this too. If you look at who, particularly the smaller owners of crypto, um, it, 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 it skewed younger and of uh, higher minorities, people of minorities. I don't know if you've seen some of the, the numbers on that. I have. Yeah. I have. Why do you and think, really, why, why, no, why, no, why do you think that happened? Well, I mean, this is just speculation, but you know, I'll, I'll first note that it, it's really sad because, one of the biggest topics that I think cuts across both the financial advisory and wealth management industry and academia is trying to close the savings gap, the, you know, the, the socioeconomic status and race-based yeah. savings gaps that we see. And then, you know, here you see it widening in a way because you've got investors 
who, you know, maybe shouldn't be getting in uh, to some of these alternative products, getting in and then finding themselves uh, really in a worse off position. Now, why, why do we think this might be happening? There's, there's all sorts of reasons. You know, one of the ones that I've, I've come across, one reason that I've come across that I think is, has some intuitive appeal is that, uh, you know, investors who are typically underrepresented have also typically not been treated all that well by the sort of mainstream uh, and conventional financial institutions. And so now you've got this essential, essentially an alternative investment product. And there's something appealing about that. And, that, you know, that it's been part of the marketing of crypto is the sort of, uh, you know, alternative nature of it. And that may be in particular uh, appealing to groups who feel like they've been ignored or left out by the mainstream. Which is this sort of decentralized, but if it was so decentralized, how did uh, FTX end up losing so much money <laughs> if it was so decentralized, <laughs> which is yeah. just kind of beats the, uh, I was thinking, I was thinking like right now I hear a lot of ads about gold, 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 gold. Don't, yep. you don't have to put up with the stock market, losing all your money. You're not going to have to live through or companies that are selling some sort of hedged products without actually talking about the downside in it is, is, is this, I mean, are there marketing groups that sit around thinking you would know better than I, <laughs> like, this is how we take advantage of people's emotions at this point in time. Oh man. I mean, you know, I, you know, my, in my academic job, you know, I teach the core marketing class to, to the full-time MBAs and, you know, one of the very, very first things we talk about is, you know, the dangers in doing justice, right? Because, can you can you squeeze out some profit? Absolutely. Um, will it last? Absolutely not. Right. This is like, uh, you know, the type of strategies that made sense in a world where firms and consumers had sort of more, you know, single shot interactions and they weren't, you know, expected to have repeated interactions. And here, you know, that's not the world that we live in now. And there's a lot more transparency. Uh, now, you ask, do, do you know, do, do marketers sit around a room and say this? I, I, I suspect not, <laughs> uh, but, you know, probably part of what they're thinking about is, well, you know, how can we get the sale? This is something that's going to work. Um, this, of course, isn't the only space where we see this. You know, there's a whole, you know, we, we, you probably talked about the whole world of behavioral economics and there's, you know, all sorts of nudges that try to sort of orient consumers to try to do, quote unquote, the right thing, you know, to save more. And now there's a whole sort of cottage industry that's cropped up that are doing what we call sludge. You know, rather than putting in nudges, they're putting in, you know, sludges. And it's, you know, it's the, if you've ever booked a, uh, a ticket and, and the default option is to upgrade to first class, that's a, that's a great example of using a behavioral insight uh, in, in a pretty nefarious way. And what does sludge stand for? Oh, it doesn't stand for anything. It's not an acronym. Oh. You know, it's just that it's, 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 it's the, just the, pushing the you forward, of, not a nudge. I'm going to smack you forward. Yeah, it's good. Well, or you can, I mean, I think another way to think about it is it gets you stuck into patterns that are not actually helpful to you. You mean like, um, like this morning I bought a bagel sandwich, right? And you <laughs> yep. go to enter, enter the card. The minimum tip was 18%. It was ranged from 18% to 30% for a bit, right? Yep. That like, yep. <laughs> where did, yeah, I, where I, did I, that I, happen? A like, bagel shop. I know, but that. when did that happen? It wasn't when did that that didn't happen three years ago, four years ago, five no. years ago. This is happening now. It's funny if it, yeah, if it was if it had said fifty cents a buck or a buck fifty or two bucks, I probably would have got. I probably would have given a buck. But when you're asking yep. for thirty percent, it just yep. seemed a little outlandish. I, oh, and this is you know, we see this all the time, and it's you know, it, it, and that particular one, by the way, that one kills me because you see it in all different ways. Sometimes. They default you into 25%. Yeah. Um, and then other times, you know, they set it up so that the 30% is all the way on the left and 18% is on the right. And, you you know, it's just another case of, you know, consumers have got enough things pulling their attention. You got to pay attention that, to this too. And it's, you know, it's not that some workers don't deserve that extra tip, but you kind of want to be the one to decide. Oh, I, that's, that's right. So, so. You, you've done a lot of work on um, future selves, having people identify with their future because pe most people have a hard time seeing themselves 20 or 30 or 40 years out right so yeah, for, right. for an investor today how can they how can they use their future self the view of their future self in order to make more prudent decisions as opposed to react emotionally right now 
Yeah, it's a it's a great question. Uh, you know, I'll say it's not something we've tested from like a research perspective. We haven't actually tested, you know, whether we could get people to think more about their future selves and have them make slightly more rational, uh, you know, you know, quote unquote rational investment decisions. I, I'd actually flip it around, which is to say, let's not actually make it about the future self because that's a it's a hard concept to think about in more sort of quiet and cold settings. And it's an even harder one to think about when you're getting pulled into the heat of the moment. I think it, the way I'd rather think about these is to just consider, you know, help investors consider that there are current and future selves and that, you know, the, 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 the version that you are right now who's making this decision isn't the only version of you who's going to be out there. And that if you, you know, if you pull out now, you may miss out on those, big gains later. And it's not just you, but it's your future self. Uh, and if you do jump in now to something that looks like it's taking off, you know, don't forget, uh, is it is it because you really want to do the right thing or is it that you're getting pulled in too much? So I guess the way that I would think about this is not to say necessarily, you know, think about who you'll be, but rather question the motives for why you're doing what you're doing is the reason that you're trying to jump ship or the reason that you're trying to get on board, the you know right reason, does it fit in with your overall investment goals? Or is it because you're feeling something right now and you've got to scratch that itch and it, it may be left sort of, uh, you know, left unscratched, if you will. <laughs> I am. Uh, yep. I, I couldn't agree more in the good, you know, a good investor has an investment thesis that they actually understand and, and stick with and stick with and aim to. And then you, you do it with a great a degree of cynicism, skepticism, and moderation. <laughs> you really do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, yep, it's funny. Right. It, I mean, right. obviously the market's a little choppy right now. Inflation's high, all those other things, but it, it, so it's not a fun time, but it's nothing like the financial crisis. And I remember in the midst of the financial crisis, it, it's like the point of, you might've, you Either either the things are going to recover or it's going to be some complete reset. And if it's a complete reset, it's not going to really matter where your money is because it's a complete reset. And if things recover, you better be on the side of the recovery. So you, I mean, it was, it's just like foolishness to to sell everything like, sick in the sideline. So totally. how I, I want to share a quote f with you that um, that when we talk about manufacturing products on Wall Street, about twenty years ago, I was at a conference. Uh, with a bunch of investment advisors and this, he must've been 80. He'd been in the business forever. And he came up to me and he said, Pat, remember this, when the ducks quack, feed them. And I said, what does that mean? What does that mean? And he says, when they want it, you give it to them. Don't worry about what happens to them. And I thought, holy smokes, what a terrible view of your customers. Yeah, exactly. Right? <laughs> I just thought. They were customers. They were customers. Yeah, and were his clients. point was when they ask for it, I don't care what happens to them. When the ducks quack, you feed them. And I thought, oh, my, what a sad, sad <laughs> a view of your, of your business that you must have, right? That is pretty sad. <laughs> it is really. It's like, and you wonder you, why people don't hire financial advisors. And you wonder why, right? <laughs> if you wonder There's why, there's too many guys like that out there. Hey, Hal, appreciate you taking some time to join us. As always, we appreciate you, and uh, love to ask you back uh, at some point in the future. Hey guys, thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. All, All right, right, take care. See you, Hal. Take care. He's, he's uh, I, I, he sounds like he's about 25, doesn't he? <laughs> I feel like I'm talking to one of my Wait, kids. Did he, oh, did he, he get the PhD from Stanford or is that like a mail order or something? I know, it was from Stanford. Like, what, did you start college when you were 14? What's the deal? Maybe. Um, I don't know. He's got a, I, his education, he got a BA in psychology from Tufts University in okay. 2001. Nobody cares about his 2009 from a, a PhD in psychology from Stanford. I didn't make me feel bad about myself. Huh? Well. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Huh? I don't think you really are feeling bad about yourself, Pat. No, I have no it. Yeah. What do you mean feeling bad about myself? Yeah. That's like, what I you just said. I probably, I probably should have spent more time on my formal education. Yeah. I So I did a... Um, but I, 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 I didn't like I didn't like it that much. You learned other areas and <laughs> yeah, you maybe read a ton be. and you've... yeah okay. 
I would I would put you up with anyone with a PhD in financial planning. Um, fair enough. So, fair enough. Fair enough. But I, I I went through junior college and a state school. I worked all my way through, and never took things too seriously until my last couple of years. Then I did, but I didn't pay, take much. Didn't really take anything seriously. Um, and then I did a week long course back um, at one of the Ivy League schools. I'm not going to mention the name because it's kind of irrelevant. And I had so much fun. <laughs> And I, I remember sitting there thinking, I think I, I probably would have really enjoyed this. Maybe I wouldn't have at 20 years old. Maybe I yes. would have been bored stiff. Um, but as an as an adult, I'm like, this is it's actually not too late. Well, we are just about out of time here. And I uh, want to let people know of our workshops. Uh, we've got uh, workshops on Social Security. Everything related to Social Security, if you are getting near the age of Social Security, really, it's how do you, how do you balance Social Security with all the other things that you've got going on in your financial life. So uh, it's the week of March 22nd through April 1st in Sacramento, Denver, Cincinnati, and the Bay Area. And you can sign up at allworthfinancial.com forward slash workshops. We will see you next week. This program has been brought to you by Allworth Financial, a registered investment advisory firm. Any ideas presented during this program are not intended to provide specific financial advice. You should consult your own financial advisor, tax consultant, or estate planning attorney to conduct your own due diligence.